right. Um, <clears throat> all right. I want to start with a very quick review. And I'm not going to go through every point. I have a long list, however. But I want to remind you of the things that we have done so far and what we have learned at this point. My reason, of course, for any time we do review is so that we basically nail those things down inside your head. I want you to get them to the point where you know what they are without without having to run to your Bible and look them up. I want you to just have them in the cobwebs somewhere so that when God desires to pull them out by the power of his spirit, he can. But, you know, God, God can only bring to remembrance what you've put to mind, right? So let's do this together. First of all, I would do want to get an answer from you on this as a collectively as a group here. Tell me what we have, how we have defined covenant as a subject. What is a good definition for a covenant? It's an agreement between two parties, correct? Or at least two, two groups, possibly, but two, two parties, okay? Very good, Brenda. I'm thankful for that, that you mentioned that. It is actually a legally binding agreement. Had an interesting conversation yesterday morning um, uh, in Sunday school class with a couple of guys who we were talking about how God works judicially. In so many of the things that are in God's word that have pertain, particularly pertain to our relationship with him, they're based on a legal uh, judicial uh, decision of God, that God has set in place a standard that does not alter or change so that you understand how to approach him. You understand how to, how to come into his presence or how to come into his mercy, how to receive salvation, um, or how we initially start where we are and how do we make that transfer from, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. These are all things that are done by a judicial thing. Covenant is a judicial uh, decision by God. It is a legally binding agreement. And what's really cool is in, I think it's in Romans when God starts talking about how can Israel move from a covenant that they're supposed to be under uh, in the law, how do they move out of that and move into the covenant in Jesus Christ? And we're going to get to that, I think, in the next week or two. And we're going to look at that. But understanding that it's a legally binding agreement um, can also explain to us uh, in some ways, what the resistance that so many Jews have to coming into salvation because they feel like they are betraying a covenant in order to come into another covenant. But that's not, but that's not true. And God in his word has explained how one is put to death so that the other one comes to, into life and provides life. So knowing that it is a legally binding agreement has got to be the top, got to be top on your understanding and remembrance of what is a covenant. It is a legally binding agreement. Who made the legal law? God did. Okay. All right. And uh, what are some other things about the, a definition of a covenant that to you are really profoundly important to mention to people if you're talking to them about this? If you're defining it to someone, okay, it's a legally binding agreement. That's pretty generic and it's pretty sterile what else okay it seems like there there can be conditions with it or or it can be unconditional so in in the word of god in particular you do have to determine which kind of covenant is it is it conditional or unconditional okay it's a, it's it is serious and how do you understand its seriousness 
How do you know that it's serious? There you go. Very good. Because by definition, a covenant has to do with the cutting of flesh and the walking between the pieces of flesh. Whether or not that is literally done with every single covenant, that principle still holds true in every single covenant. Whether or not David and Jonathan cut flesh and walked between the pieces, Scripture doesn't tell us. It tells us they exchanged robes. Why? Because in that passage, God was teaching a different quality about covenant to us. And he was showing it to us through this bond of friendship that they had. But always, it, regardless, did Jonathan and David understand the seriousness of covenant that if they violated it, God would hold their lives in account for it? Did, did they? Do you guys remember that? Come on, you guys, tell me you remember this, right? Okay, therefore, you can conclude that Jonathan and David understood the cutting of flesh was an, was an understood quality of covenant. So covenant is a legally binding agreement, and it is the cutting of flesh and the passing between the pieces, and therefore it's, the seriousness of it is life and death. You, you're, you, it is a, a covenant made unto death, basically. Okay. Um, I think I'll get to that next point next. Now, I'm just ask you a question. We don't have to really talk it through too much, but... The second thing we've learned since we've started this, this study is an understanding of the customs and the traditions of covenant. That with covenant, there are qualities that you can look for in the text that give you good indicator as to whether or not this is speaking on the subject of covenant. Sometimes it doesn't ever use the word covenant, but the fact that they do something or they've said something or something has occurred there, you can see the qualities of covenant have been in there. Thing, okay, for instance, we'll start with that shedding of blood, the sacrifices that are made, but vows that are made, right? Um, pillars that are erected or um, marks or scars that, have, that are made on the body in some cases. Meals that are shared, right? They drink and they eat together. And so often, do you remember in the uh, book of Revelation, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And, and it says... Um, he will come into me and sup with me and I with him, basically. So it's that when he says he will come into me and he will sup with me and I with him, the idea of a covenant meal is implied there, but it's never stated in, in full context. I mean, it doesn't explain it all, but it's saying I'm standing at the door knocking. I want to come into this covenant relationship with you. And, and if you will open the door and allow me in, I will come in and we will sup together. So that subject matter comes up, and it's an important quality to understand that's when you've hit the subject of covenant. If you know the qualifiers to look for, you identify them in the text that you're reading. Um, new names or name exchanges is another one. And the exchange of gifts or the giving of gifts, for instance, like when he gave him sheep, for instance. There's also things like planting of trees that mark things, right? Why is, that, why is like a tree or a pillar so important in a covenant? What was the purpose of it? It was a sign of remembrance. How important is it for you and I to be constantly reminded that we are in some kind of a covenant with God? Yeah. It's important for me to also remember that I'm in other kinds of covenants, like with my husband. So I wear a band on my hand in case I should forget. 
<laughs> right? Which I won't. <laughs> okay, um, how about this one? The next thing we've looked at and kind of should have an understanding now is of the symbolic pictures that are found in biblical customs, like the one that we talked about with uh, Jonathan David, the exchanging of robes. And so as you look at each of these things that they exchange, what did those things symbolically represent? So that you draw out of it an understanding that when I put on the coat or the cloak of my covenant partner, when, I, when the New Testament says to me, put on Jesus Christ, what is that saying? What is the symbolic imagery of the fact that I, putting, I have put on another person's identity? What is it telling me? Okay, there's the, the idea of taking the name. And if I take their name, what does that tell you about a covenant? There you go, that two become one, that there's a oneness of identification. And therefore, when you think about your relationship with God and you are now called Christian and you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean then in your life on a daily basis when you are living your life? You are a representative of him. So when you go out to the local gas station to gas up and the, the line is long and people are honking and it, people get impatient or you're on, uh, you know, we would never talk about driving, right? When you're driving in Austin, you know, and things are going, when you start acting in a, in a way and have behavior which is non-biblical, non-Christian and, and unbecoming of the one whose name you bear, how serious is that to the breaching of your covenant? Is it? It seems like for, we just brush things like this under the carpet. We act like it's just not significant. It, but really, if you think about the seriousness of covenant and what it really means that you, you and I are in, what this relationship is that we are in, then it, to me, it helps us to elevate our understanding of responsibility of representing the one that we're in identity with. Okay, so understanding the symbolic pictures in covenant is something that we've covered. We've looked at um, um, di uh, different symbolic things and what they mean. We understand them better because God has given us symbolic imagery. Does that make sense? Without the picture, I just don't think there are some things about God's word and about his truths that without a solid, tangible image, understanding of them they they escape us you know we just don't quite grasp it when God gave us for instance this week we looked at the temple how valuable was the temple in understanding what God was doing through his son Jesus Christ once a person begins to put these two things together and they, they go back to the temple and they watch the sacrifices and the services that are performed there. And each of the, the season by season, each of the different feasts and the things that they would do, they symbolically would work these things out. How, how enriching has it been for you now that you're in Jesus Christ to go and study those things and go, wow, I get it. I see. This is what it really meant. You know, when it talks about an unblemished lamb that was watched for three days to make sure that it was without any impurity. Think of that symbolic picture in all of the things that are done anyway. Just that one picture alone speaks a million words, right? They say a picture is a thousand words. I think it's a million when it comes to scripture. Okay, um, okay the other thing we have done is we've looked at insights in how covenant 
was taken into all the world. So we've had an opportunity to say, how did covenant get out there to everyone else? How is it that in the deep, dark jungles of Africa somewhere, they're doing things that look like covenant uh, practices? How did they get them? Can you explain that to your friend if they ask that question and want to say to you, well, the Bible just picked up things from the world? And what is your answer? It's the other way around. That's exactly right. Because at what point, what was the first use of the word covenant in Scripture? Do you remember? Noah, Genesis chapter 6, correct? And when, and who was Noah? And why is that a significant point in relationship to this point about, it, about who, who started it, right? That's right, because before Noah, they've all been wiped out. The only ones left on the earth were Noah. So if Noah was the first mention of covenant in the word of God, the very first person that we can link ourselves back to is now Noah, although technically we can go back to Abraham, and, or I mean to Adam and Eve, but we, but we go back to Noah because he and his children were exposed to who? Covenant by who? God. So if anybody understands covenant in the world, even the people in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, it came through the passage of that information from the bloodline of Noah. Isn't that awesome? Okay. Insights on how covenant was seen all over, over the world. Um, another, here's a good question to ask, but we kind of already talked about it. The knowledge of the seriousness of covenant and the consequences for breaking it. We had one example that was given to us of, of someone who was breaking covenant with God. Do you remember who he was? It was Moses. What, was, what happened with Moses? Right. So why was that so serious? That was. All right. It's very interesting, too, the circumstance behind that is Noah or Moses had been called by God to lead his people from their captivity into the land of promise. And yet he himself had not even obeyed the covenant, which was the basis upon which God was bringing them back to the land. So it was, it was not a for forgivable thing. God had to act as severely as possible in order to straighten out the mess, right? And he did. So there's another one in the New Testament that is more clearly who we were talking, um, Lisa, Lisa and I were talking about how, she said how covenant has really changed her attitude even when she takes the Lord's Supper now. It just kind of opened it up on a whole new level. How many of you had that experience where, you know, before you, when you took the covenant meal in church, you didn't quite fully understand all that you were really doing, although you understood it on the very basic level that it was in remembrance of Jesus. But to really understand the covenant uh, practices of eating and drinking and the quality and the importance of the subject of blood, the shedding of blood. And then to take that in your communion is so amazing. There is a verse, though, that, that comes into this idea of the seriousness of covenant, and that if you are not aware of it, it's the one that I actually like to open up to every single time if I'm taking the Lord's Supper in church, is um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And, and actually, it's verses kind of in and around that as well. But in particular, there's a statement in there that says that, uh, it says, do not approach the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And then it goes on to talk about how you need to make uh, 
appeasement or, or rec- rectify conflicts that are going on between you and anyone else in the, in the body of Christ. And the statement then is because it, otherwise you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, right? It's talking about making sure that you're at peace. Now, that could be complicated for a person who says, well, wait, I'm, all, I'm in covenant with Jesus, not the church. Is that true? Now that you understand covenant and its responsibilities, who are you in covenant with? There you go. Why? Because the church, if, because each one of us individually are in covenant with Jesus, and therefore if we put Jesus on, we are to take on the responsibilities and all of his, all of his things. In the story of, of Moses, do you remember what Zephira's answer was to um, Moses when she uh, took the foreskin from her child and she threw it at her husband's feet. And what did she say to him? You are a bridegroom of blood to me. What did that mean? Because she was married as a bridegroom. She had come into a, a, a marriage relationship with Moses. What, what had she taken on? him and his relationship with God. Since he was in covenant with God to keep this commandment of circumcision because she married him, she also has the responsibility. So what that teaches us in a bigger picture is that um, if we go into covenant with a person and they've got a family, for instance, in your marriages, you go into marriage with the husband, right? Then what does that mean? You take on all their family. When Jonathan and David made covenant, Jonathan and David said that you will also show your loving kindness to my family, right? So in Jesus Christ, when we come into relationship with Jesus and someone else is already, and they are already in relationship with Jesus, then what happens? We all also become one and have a a responsibility to one another. So in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, where he's speaking about if you have discord going on between yourself and another Christian in your community, you must resolve that. Otherwise, you are coming to the Lord's Supper basically in sin. It needs to be resolved, and then you can come to God in in a worthy manner. I thought that was a good teaching in there. And it says in there, then, as a result, uh, concerning the seriousness that we talk, we're talking about here, the seriousness of covenant says, and for this reason, because you are not resolving conflicts with your brothers and sisters in Christ, of whom you are of one body, you are one in Christ because of him, because of relationship with him. It says, some are sick, some are weak, and some have fallen asleep. So it's talking about the consequences. This is what happened to Moses on the road back to, you know, Egypt. God put him on his deathbed, basically, was going to put him to death. And had Sapphira not stepped in and done what was required, God would have taken his life. So we have the seriousness of, of relationship with God and the seriousness of our mutual relationship amongst one another is that we are to always honor God in our relationships and understand our responsibilities towards one another. They extend beyond just us and Jesus. Otherwise, you can live any way you want amongst the world and amongst people. But you're bearing his name, so you have to represent him correctly. And because they're in relationship with him also, we are in one body. So we are responsible for one another. We're responsible to honor and respect one another. Okay, biblical insights to the responsibilities of covenant. 
Um, I'm just going to kind of read these off for you to make this quicker. Holding back nothing. In other words, Moses not obeying God. It almost cost him his life. But you can hold back nothing. There obviously had been a conversation between him and Sapphira. And Sapphira won temporarily until she figured out that she was in covenant with a man who was in covenant with God. And by that virtue, when she went into covenant with Moses, she's taking on his relationships as well. That does not mean she got saved because of Moses, but it means that she, because she chooses to go into covenant with Moses, that she has to honor Moses, and honor ha- Moses has to honor God. I didn't think of it when I was doing this, but when there's a tug of war between covenants, between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, and a man and God, who's covenants trump whose always your covenant with God trumps that of men so that's another thing to to keep in mind and I feel like we've kind of covered that before um okay the other insights to responsibilities um it's a sacrificial commitment in other words you are to live your life sacrificially for that other person um Abraham's offering of Isaac his only son was one of the examples that we looked at but um, there are so many in Scripture that talk about sacrificially loving one, one another. Uh, setting aside personal ambitions for the sake of your covenant partner. We looked at Jonathan, how he loved David as himself. And even though Jonathan was actually the one who was, or should have anyway, taken up the, the throne next. But he knew David had been chosen by God. He loved him so much in this covenant relationship. He sacrificially, he said it's you know, he, he submitted under the authority of God in that and allowed David to have that honor. Uh, putting the covenant loyalty ahead of your own desires in life. I, li- I thought about that in that regard, that with covenant, since you're to, you're to, covenant loyalty has to be put ahead of your own desires. I thought about David and Saul. When David twice had Saul put into his hands and he could have killed him but out of his loyalty for his covenant with God he did not touch the Lord's anointed out of his loyalty for his covenant to Jonathan he did not touch the Lord's anointed now in there we see that he's saying it's the Lord's anointed so the the covenant which is superseding in all that is the one with God first but he also had covenant with Jonathan we've learned a lot these are things that just, you know, for, and you'll get this review sheet when the chart comes out, but these are things that help you if you go back over them just to say, well, what have I learned so far? I've learned this, I've learned this. I've le-. You've learned a lot more than you really think you have, but what I'm hoping is the more that we review this, you know, the better it's going to get embedded in your brain so you won't forget it, you know. And these are foundational truths. When you're trying to learn doctrine, and that is what we're doing, this is a doctrine. And it's one of the more, I think, um, important doctrines in Scripture. You know, you can learn about the doctrine of, uh, of um, justification, sanctification, propitiation, you know, all these things. But this one, to me, is the first, this is like step one. You have to start here first in order to then build on the other. The others build underneath it. Okay. All right. So now today, our homework she starts us out in, uh, on day one and two at the bottom of page 81, and she tells us that what we're going to be doing is looking at three covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, and the old covenant, right? But this is going to be a progressive thing from 
chap from starting here with lesson eight all the way to the end of our study, which is through lesson 10, right? No, lesson 11. Eight, nine, 10, 11. So it's four weeks on these three covenants. And so this week, all we're going to do is look at the first two. And what I'm going to show you is a technique of objective observation that helps you to maybe clarify questions or problems. One of the things that she asked us, I don't remember what day it was. She asked the question, um, might have been day three. Let me see if I can find it. Um, I've got so many sheets in here. Nope, I don't have it. Um, but she asked the question, is the old, the, the covenant of the law simply an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. And I can understand why people might want to think that is true, because who's involved in the Abrahamic covenant and what are the promises are also seen a lot in the covenant of the law. It's the same people group, for instance, right? And some of the, some of the things from the first covenant are still being executed in the second, and yet, there is a distinctive covenant that's going to be made here. For precept students, it's so important to learn to do charts that give you comparison and contrasting so that you can see it clearly. You're not going to get it if you're just flittering through the scripture and not writing anything down. The only way you're going to get it is when you start charting it. All of a sudden, then you go, oh, look at here and look at here and look at here and look at here. Um, the com I had the same conversation yesterday morning in Sunday school class. We were talking about in-time events. There's another time when learning this discipline of making charts and making the comparisons is so valuable because in the subject of in-time events, there's characters that are similar in a variety of places in history. And there are similar events that sound alike in a variety of places in history. So, for instance, some of these wars that are described about the end time, there are some that are similar to that that have already occurred in history, right? More than once, once or twice. Um, we have that um, abom or, um, abomination of desolation, which occurred during the Greek Empire. We also have um, the abomination. It's not an abomination of desolation, but very similar qualities of things that happen in 70 AD when the temple falls and this oppression against Israel, right? And now we're going to, but yet we're waiting for another one that's going to come at the end of time, correct? So when you're in scripture and you come across verses, I listened to a, um, a, a program this week or a, a YouTube video on a guy who took Psalm 83 and he was uh, looking at this and he thinks this is something that occurs before the seven years, but it sounds like the Gog and Magog thing. It also sounds a little bit like Armageddon. So how do you iron that out? How do you figure out which one it really is? So if you wanted to iron that out, how would you go about doing that? If you find a verse here and a verse here and a verse here, and they all sound alike, how do you figure out, if, is it talking about the same time frame? Pardon? Okay, you're going to look at the context, and the context is going to tell you things like the historical setting, 
one of the things that was like a ding, ding, ding for all of us when we did Revelation was we figured out that one of those references about wars was in the Greek Empire. So we know it can't be the end time because it's talking about the Greek Empire. So that helped clarify, and you would never get that except that you looked at the context and you asked those questions about who, what, why, when, where, and how, correct? All right, so you have to, you have to objectively search for qualifiers, characteristics, attributes, right? Maybe you're looking at a person like the Antichrist and maybe there's been a person or a character somewhere else in history that is just like him. And there's so much like, do you guys remember who these, the other one was? Antichrist, and who does he look just like from the Greek Empire? Who was that guy's name? There you go, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So this guy, good girl, <laughs> see? And if, but when you lay them up side by side, the things that they do are so similar. But the way that you know that they're distinguished is the time frame. So that's what we're doing here today. We have, the, have a question that is kind of debated, and they look at these two covenants, and they say, well, I think they're just an, one's an extension of the other. So how do we resolve that? What we do is we look for qualities and characteristics, right? And we ask the who, what, why, when, where, and how kinds of questions, and then we compare the answers. So what you have to do in order to make a comparison is just very systematically and very clinically write down the facts about each of these things and compare them. That's the only way you come to an absolute hard truth. That's why so often, you know, people go, well, I think this. Well, I think that I'm going, no, this is the answer. Why do I know? Why am I able to be so dogmatic on things? It's because of things like this. Once you see it, you can't argue it. You just can't. If you're, um, what's the right word? If you're um, honest, if you have integrity, you would look at this truth and go, yeah, you're right. That isn't there. That's here. So it, it resolves all kinds of conflicts and, and questions. I love that. Okay, so can I take this off? Need snacks and volunteers for April? 16, everybody got that? Okay. Not that we would starve to death or anything, but we might. <laughs> okay, so let's start by looking then. We are going to very carefully and with a great deal of detail, we are going to look at these two uh, covenants that we looked at this week in our homework, and we want to just get the bare bones down up here. So let's start again, and boy, have we reviewed this how many times? I mean, do you feel like... You've about got this memorized now. I'm going to move this up here. Okay. Let's do here. What God promised. God promised to Abram. Okay. So what did God promise? Let's start. We looked at Genesis 12 and 13 and 15, and then later we go into 17, I think. And she didn't take us to 22, but, it, but it, in case you want to know that 22 is really also very good to pull into these uh, other verses. Okay, so tell me what you saw in Genesis 12 was the, the foundation of the promises. What was the basic promises God made? Number one, I will make you a great nation. Okay, and that's in Genesis 12, verse 2. Okay? 
Okay. Okay, so and he's promising him to him the land to you and your descendants. Okay, and that's in 12.3. I mean, it's, sometimes it's said more, in more than one place, but that's the reference I pulled out. Okay. Oh, no, t 7. Sorry. But now you can go back to 3 and tell me what you see is the other one. <laughs> Sorry. And one more promise. Yes. In you, what's going to happen? In you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what does that mean in you that this is going to happen? Through you, through your bloodline, in your descendants as time goes by. So he's saying in you, all families of the earth. Do you like that? It says all families of the earth will be blessed. It doesn't say just the nation of Israel. Okay, and that's in 12.3. And we'll, we'll be blessed. All right. Now, what Kay did on page 82, did I don't know if any of you guys noticed this. Flip over to 82 and where she opens the homework assignment and tells you to kind of go through these. Um, um, she wants you to review the basics of each of these covenants, right? She starts with the Abrahamic covenant. And in there, she says, God made a covenant with Abram, promising him primarily two things. Okay. How many do we have up here? Three. Why do I split it to three? Because I think that if you're going to be able to ever explain this to your friends and to your family as questions might come to you in time, as time goes by, you need to be able to distinguish between the promise of the nation and the promise of the seed. Even though the seed comes through the nation, that is why she combined it and made it too. Because what she's saying is he promised him a land and he promised him a seed. The seed initiates the nation and eventually through that nation comes the seed that we are speaking of, right? So he, I went ahead and broke it down because I really feel like it is three distinctive things and that, that it's truly, if you only put the first two on here, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you the land, this significant statement right here is where chapter 15 comes in. And what is it when, God, when Abraham has a conversation with God and he's complaining about not yet having a son and God says to him don't worry I'm going to give you a son of your own body right and then when Abraham said oh I and he and he looked at the stars and he says count the stars your descendants shall be as as numerous as the scar in other words uncountable you won't be able to even count how many descendants you are going to have and what did Abraham respond with how did he respond to God when God made him that promise in Genesis 15? He believed God. When he believed God, then what happened? What resulted from that? He was counted as righteousness. So he got his salvation, right? So if you look at just the first two and eliminate this third one, does that make sense to you? that he could receive salvation just by land and a nation. If you didn't understand that from the nation comes the seed 
And who is the seed according to what we looked at in Galatians chapter 3? That seed who is Christ. So he, the, and you will be blessed. And he says, and uh, let's put this over here, Galatians 3, 16. And that seed is Christ. So all in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed is a reference to Galatians, what Galatians 3.16 reveals to us. And that is that that seed that was promised to him here that would be a blessing to all the world was Christ himself. That's who he was promising him. If you don't break it down to three instead of two, you might lose that most significant understanding. And it doesn't become as clear to people when you're trying to explain it to them. They, they don't see how you connect them together. Okay, so with that done, when this covenant was made between Abraham and God, who was the, who was the mediator? Who mediated between God and Abraham when he made this covenant? There was no mediator, was there? It was direct contact between God and Abram. So let's put that up here. No mediator. That's a significant point concerning this particular relationship. This was a one-on-one -on -one between God and how many people? One. One, one man, God, uh, Abram. All right, so now, to whom and for how long is this promise given? To whom and for how long? Okay. And his descendants... And that, that's the first part, and it's forever. Okay, so I'm going to put a clock on this for us to remember how long this is. This is a forever. And it's a promise that God is saying that through you, I'm going to do this, and it's going to uh, affect your descendants. Your descendants are also going to be brought in to the beneficiary of the land because of you. Okay? They're going to, in other words, inherit what Abraham is going to leave, right? Okay, God gave assurance then by a covenant. This is what was really cool. When he cut covenant, he says, what was the covenant in Genesis 15? Now, I want to point this out to you so we talk it through in case you have any questions. In Genesis 15, did he spell out these three things? The nation, the land, and this, the seed of blessing. Are those three things mentioned in Genesis 15? Yeah, isn't that interesting that he only really mentions, I'm going to give you a son of your own body, which will begin this concept of the nation. But he doesn't actually spell it out in the same way as he did in back in chapter 12, where he says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't make mention about yet a seed to come in Genesis 15. But just like I talked about earlier about um, how the subject of the cutting of blood is is a, it's a known quality for all covenants, whether or not they literally do a covenant cutting of blood or not. It is understood to be that there is a seriousness of covenant if you enter a covenant that is like the cutting of flesh and the, and the 
and then the passing between the pieces of flesh to signify how serious your covenant relationship is. When God made covenant promises to Abram back in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, he again restates parts of them, correct? When you went back and looked at that? But when you hit 15 and he restates it again, does he state every single point? Does that mean the first uh, two chapters previously are dismissed? Is it understood by Abraham that God means when, in, when he hits chapter 15, does he understand that this is what God is promising him? The land, the seed, and the nation? Or is he only thinking in chapter 15 that God is going to give him a biological son? How do we know that God is actually speaking of all these things that have already been stated? In other words, chapter 12 and 13 don't become irrelevant just because in chapter 15 he didn't re-mention those three things uh, step by step. Why do we know that? Did Kay ask you guys to go into the New Testament for commentary? Where is your commentary that explains Genesis chapter 15 so you understand that it does still include these first three promises that were given all the way back in 12. That's right, back to Galatians chapter 3. Your Galatians chapter 3 is huge for you in this particular study because Galatians chapter 3 literally is a, is a commentary. Here's what I laid it out on my, on my sheet here. Is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Is there any better way to define what God meant than to actually have God say, this is what I meant. <laughs> I mean, that is the most exciting thing. And for I, how many of you guys, this is the first time through this covenant study? Two, three of you, good. Okay, so for the rest of you, I'm not giving you new information. But for the sake of those who are hearing this the first time, we need to make sure they get this. This is so profoundly important. What a treasure Galatians chapter 3 is to us. You need to write on the top of your Bible in Genesis chapter 15 that Galatians chapter 3 is your commentary from God to you. You don't need a Matthew Henry commentary. You don't need a com commentary by Berkeley or by who, uh, Barclay, I guess is his name, or by who is some of the others. I can't think of it <laughs> off the top of my head. But you don't need any... You don't need any other commentary. God gave you commentary. It's in Galatians chapter 3. So when you flip to Galatians chapter 3, open your, your book for me real quick, your Bible. Go to Galatians 3. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 first. And somebody read that for me because there's our commentary, which helps us to understand when God was speaking to Abraham, did Abraham understand that all of this was still on the table for understanding by uh, Abram when uh, Genesis 15 is laid out. Even though Genesis 15 omits some of those points, they're not d clearly declared again, but they're understood by Abram. And how do we know? Because of this commentary. Read chapter 3, 6 to 8. Who wants to read? Okay, thanks. Wow. So again, right there, he literally 
quote, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's mentioning the event that's going on in, in uh, Genesis 3, 15, uh, chapter 3, no, Genesis 15, right? He's mentioning that encounter with God when that covenant is made, but he's mentioning, quoting, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Where did that happen? What chapter did that happen in of Genesis? 12. So, even, so basically, he in that one verse, he brings together 12, 13, 14, 15, throws them all together, and he's saying, in 15, where it says, I'm going to give you a son, does not mean that what I said in chapter 12 is, is irrelevant. It still stands. And he understood that it still stood. Because when he believed God for a biological son, Galatians said he be, that God was preaching to him the gospel. So obviously, he wasn't talking to him about Isaac. He didn't put his faith in Isaac to get salvation, did he? Are you guys following? You guys are nearly as excited about this as I was when I learned. I just, when I started putting these pieces together, I'm going, now it starts, now it makes sense. Because before, I kept just looking at each chapter separate, and I couldn't understand why when we hit 15, he doesn't spell it out again. He only talks about the sun, and he's going to make him as new. He didn't even mention the land. He believed in Christ. Isaac, exactly. And how do we know that? Because God gave us commentary in Galatians chapter 3 that explains that to us. And what's interesting to me is the Hebrew mind thinks so differently than us Gentiles. And also, we have learned this, we've lost the skill of making observations and really drawing good conclusions. So that for us, we're going, oh, I'm isolating chapter 15 from everything else that happened before. No. As a matter of fact, there weren't even chapter divisions in, you know, before recent history. Abraham understood it, and for generations, all the Hebrews understood that when God made that covenant, chapter 12 still applied, right? No, she never does do that. I think so. I think so. And we have absolute good good job. Now, did you guys hear this? She hasn't done this before, and yet she picked up on the, the seed that was promised. She's talking about uh, in the garden when uh, God is speaking to Eve after the fall of man. And God promises to Eve a seed that will come. And what will the seed do? He will crush the head of Satan. That same seed then, which is interesting, because the following chapter, 4, she gives birth to a son. And what does she say? <gasps> Behold, a man-child. She's so excited. Why? She's hoping it's the seed. Isn't that exciting? Her salvation came in the moment that she believed God about that. And you see the belief was there when in the next chapter she gives birth to a son. And she says, look, that's a man-child. She's excited. So God, I think through this inductive process, what I want you to see is how chapter divisions can be a trip up for us. Don't let them trip you up. The, script, the text of Genesis was written in its totality. Abraham linked chapter 12's promises that were initiated here. These initial promises 
did not go away in Genesis chapter 15, but, they, but in Genesis 15, he was just dealing with one particular aspect of it as a problem for him because he saw himself growing older, getting farther and farther away from any potential of becoming a father, and he didn't yet have a son. So he was beginning to have doubts, right? Okay, so are we good now? Do you guys, are you linking this? Now, what's really cool then is that in that Galatians chapter 3, after that, drop down to verse 16, the conversation goes on, and in Galatians 3, it's talking about, is it by the law or by a promise that these things came to him? But what does it say in 16 about that seed that he put his belief in? Someone read it. Uh-huh. So now what we can see by looking at Galatians 3.16 and Galatians 3.6-8 is that Abraham, when God spoke to him in Genesis 15, he was making this promise to him about the land, the seed, and the nation. And we know that Abraham understood that the seed, even though it was going to begin with a son named Isaac, he understood that what he was promising to him was a descendant one day whom through all the earth would be blessed. And that that blessing was the seed that was being promised to him. Whether or not he understood that seed went back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4, I don't know. But I would think so. If you and I figured it out, don't you think Abraham probably did? I mean, we know that a seed had been promised from the very first moment in history almost. I mean, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, a seed was promised. And what's interesting is if you ever do a study on the names of these different generations of children that are born, and they follow a bloodline of um, those of faith, and they connect this son, and then they connect the next son, and they just follow the bloodline of believing children. But the names of those children, I give uh, indication about their faith in the coming seed. And with each child, they name him in, in proportion to what it is that they're looking for, anticipating from God concerning the coming seed. It's really cool. Very cool. Okay, so now what we have is we have these things connected. We see how um, Galatians 3 gives us our commentary that God had preached the gospel to Abraham. The promise was to Abraham and to his seed, that is Christ. Um, I want to give you one more verse that I think is cool, and I had not seen it before until last night. Go to Acts 3.26, and I looked it up just to see how it reads out, but after, as a follow-up, layering on top of what we've already said and what we're seeing here, Acts 3.26 actually is much more powerful than it was. Do you have, who has that open? Now, this is Acts 3, so he's speaking, uh, I think it's Peter that's speaking here, and he's giving, because it's the first part of the, of the book of Acts, and the, the church is first being birthed. Paul isn't on the scene yet, so it's got to be Peter. And so Peter is saying, he says, God, so he's giving the gospel, and he's saying, look, God raised up his servant, and he sent him to bless you. 
I went, oh my gosh, that's where he said, and he will be a blessing to all the nations. And he's going to bless you how? By turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Isn't that cool? I love that one. I just thought that was a, a little extra. Go to Genesis 22:18 though, and now pull this back around full circle again to how we see this, the seed of blessing. And this is how I'm going to continue to refer this, to this, uh, you know, so that you get it. He, we are looking for a seed of blessing. And that, is, that seed is Christ. He is the seed of blessing. Okay, that's who they've been waiting on all these times, the seed of blessing. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what's going on in 22? Is um, Abraham has been uh, asked by God to go and take his son Isaac and to sacrifice him, right? So now at the end of this, Abraham has been tested by God. His covenant faithfulness to God has been tested, and he's passed the test. What was it? In Genesis 22 that we see about the subject of love, how is love demonstrated to us in Genesis 22? What did Abraham do that showed God that he loved him? Yeah. He was willing to sacrifice his only son and give up that which was most precious to be obedient to the voice of God, right? And he was showing his faith and trust in God that regardless if we see this in Hebrews later where it explains to us again a commentary statement that he understood that even if he killed his son on that, in, on that mountain, that what would God do, have to do? He would have to raise him from the dead because what had God promised him? Through Isaac shall your blessing be, and through Isaac shall your nation come, right? So he knew that a nation was going to come. His son had to live long enough to have children. So God would have to do What a picture of faith. I mean, God just took this man who, you know, was, was walking in the land of the Chaldeans and brought him into this land and began to get, give him all these opportunities to believe in him, and he did, and he passed the test. So when you hit chapter 22, verse 18, now this is after the test, which he has passed. He's demonstrated his love for God, his sacrificial love for God. God has sacrificial love for us too, but this was a sacrificial love of Abraham for his God. And what does it say in 18? Woohoo! See that? Isn't that cool? In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we see this beautiful culmination then of the fact that he fulfilled his, his covenant relationship to God through sacrificial obedience. That is the first use of the word love in Scripture, by the way. And you know how important the first use of the word is in scripture. It demonstrates to you its, its most basic principles of what does God call love. When Jesus speaks about love, he says, if you love me, you will what? You will obey me. And those who obey me, what? Love me. <laughs> so if you are not obeying God, you're not really loving God, right? So here we see that in him, he says, um, that he had sent in, in back in Acts, he says that God had sent him, Jesus, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Abraham believed God. What did he believe? <laughs> that seed of blessing was coming, and that seed is Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. So we've gotten off the beaten track just a teeny bit in this 
piece here about Galatians trying to culminate it, but it's really important that you come to see that. When he says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that is a reference to Jesus Christ. That is who he's speaking of specifically. It is why I broke it down from, I will make of you a great nations, because in, in uh, Genesis 15, he's speaking about just his son. I'm going to give you a son of your own body, right? And from him, there's going to be this nation. And really, in that Genesis 15 passage, he's only talking about this, the son and the nation that's going to come from the son. He doesn't mention the other two. But we know from Galatians, he has not lost the quality of all three of these promises because of his response. And when he responded, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And what he believed God for was not Isaac, but it was for the seed of blessing who is Christ. Okay? Yay. It's a little complicated getting there. And if you have a friend that ever has questions on this, you might require that you sit down and actually take them through all these verses. They're going to have to be patient. But a person who's really seeking for God will be patient. They will let you take them through it. I can't tell you how many times I've taught this to people, but I always have to say, okay, let me, I need a piece of paper. <laughs> you know, Because we have to write the points down so that we don't lose track of them and we can connect back to them. All right, what did God tell Abram about... Uh, oh, I'm, wait a second. Let me get back here. I'm in the wrong spot. I want to get these other points about this. Okay, so we know there's no mediator. We know it's a forever covenant. Uh, we know the promises were for a nation, a land, and a, and a seed of blessing. So I'm going to mark these so that you see them. These are the significant points that we need to look at. These are what I'm calling qualifiers or markers or indicators that you can compare other things to. When we come over here and start looking at the law, we want to see what's being promised over here. Is there no mediator? Are these three things offered? Is it forever? And that's what you want to make your comparisons with, right? So the other thing is we see then that this is no mediator, and this was a forever, and it was an individual covenant. I don't know how else to say that. It was just between one man and God. We didn't write that up there. We did it earlier, but I forgot to write it. Okay. So it's an individual covenant made between one man and God. Um, the other thing that we need to look at is whether or not you seek uh, any kind of conditions with this particular covenant. Were there any conditions placed upon Abram when God made this covenant? No. How would you maybe even be able to point that out just through a verse? Is there any, anything that was done in, in chapter 15 when they were cutting this covenant? Who was the proactive one and who was the docile there you go. That to me is the best one if you want to really clearly just take someone to a, a bullet kind of statement that really helps clarify that. What we see is God cut covenant with Abram and God walked between the pieces the pieces of flesh, right? And that's in chapter 
It's in uh, Genesis um, 15. I get these backwards. <laughs> this is in Genesis 15. Um, let's see if I can find where I've got those verses at. There we go. On that day, God made covenant with Abraham, verses 15, 18. 17 and 18, I'm going to put both of them up there. Because 17 talks about that he, that he fell asleep, right? Or No, fifth, hold on. i got to pull, pull open my sheet. This will be easier if I just look at it on the observation worksheet. Do you have y'all's observation worksheets handy? It's helpful. <laughs> it is helpful to open the scripture when you're doing this, right? Um, okay, so we see... Um, in verse 17, that it was God that walked between the pieces of flesh. And on that day, God made a covenant with Abraham. That's at 17 and 18. And in 12, what did Abram do? That's contrasting. Yep, Abram was in a deep sleep and in terror. I like to add that because he's not sleeping as in unconscious. He's very con he is completely conscious, but what God did was he made him immobile so that God would be the one who would do the walking between the pieces of flesh. And that demonstrates us to us what kind of covenant is this? Who's doing it? Who's giving the promises? God is. And what is the expectations on Abram's part? None. There are no qualifiers given. He never says to him, you have to do this or this or this. He simply, God, Abram simply responded to what God promised him by believing him. I believe you. So God made the promises. So, it's un, so we're going to put on here, unconditional. And for some people, they like to add the word grace because that's a significant part of the idea of it being unconditional. It's by grace. It's a covenant of grace. Abram had to do absolutely nothing. It's simply believing God. Um, the rest God would do. No mediator. It's an individual covenant between God and one man. Um, it is a forever covenant. It is an unconditional covenant of grace. And it is for the land, the nation, and the seed of blessing. Okay? All right. Let's see. What did um, God reveal to Abraham, or Abram it was at that time, um, about the fulfillment, the time frame of things? Did he give him any indicators at all when he gave him the promises in Genesis 15? What did he, what were the... Right, and then he said... What would happen first concerning the land? Would the land come into their possession first and then enslavement? No. It was, he said that there would be enslavement and hardship or something like that along those lines, right? Uh, oppression. You will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And I love the word then. Do you see the word then in your text? In verse uh, 13 maybe or 16? Okay, um, Okay. 16, the word then, put, circle it or mark it in a distinctive way so that you understand that what he's saying is that first your descendants are going to go into captivity. How long? 400 years. And then what's going to happen? 
after the 400 years, what? Okay, then they will return here, right, and possess the land. So God, did God warn Abraham that this was going to be a long time to come to its uh, fulfillment? That it wasn't something that was going to happen overnight. He was not even going to see it. As a matter of fact, he said to him what was going to happen to him in the meantime. He was going to die and go, go, and go on his way, basically, and that then God would fulfill this through his descendants 400 years later. Okay, so God's giving him that insight to me was really an act of mercy, but it was also an act of uh, showing himself to be the God of all creation, the God of omniscience, right? What kind of qualities do you see of, about God through him saying, look, these things are going to happen in this order. This, there's going to be a delay of time, but when this, this is first going to happen, and now this is going to happen, and then I'm going to do this. What does that show you about God? Right, so it's prophetic. So in order to give prophetic word about something, what must God's qualities be? That, that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, that he's sovereign over the unfolding of these things in time. Um, does it also give you any indication that God has a predestined or predetermined plan? That he has appointed times for things, right? So what we see then is the first thing God does is he gives, he, he has promised Abram what he's going to do for him. Abram starts to lose heart. He comes back to him and says, no, I'm going to give you a son. Then he qualifies what he's promised him with a covenant. He says, I'm going to affirm to you that my, what I promise is absolutely true, even though my word is good enough. But I'm going to give you a qualifier of a covenant anyway to ratify or to strengthen or to, to uh, impress upon you strongly that this is a great hope. This is the verse in Hebrews 6 that I keep going back to. Why is a covenant given it? Because it puts an end to every dispute in the mind of men. Men understand that a covenant the seriousness of it and the absolute of it and the legally binding contract that it is they understand that if you ratify something with a covenant it's it's done it's going to happen right that's why it's so serious if we break covenant so uh abram has been told it's going to be a period of time before you have your uh your possession of your land I'm going to show you in your lifetime the beginning of the seed of the nation through your son. He, he even gives his son a name, doesn't he? Which is very interesting. He, who names Isaac? God himself calls him by name. And so he lets him know, yes, I'm going to be doing these things. I'm going to show you the beginning of it through your son, obviously, before your death. Uh, but your land is not going to come for 400 years. Now, he doesn't mention how long it's going to be until the seed of blessing comes. Does he? But I want to take you to a verse that I thought was pretty cool. Let's see here. Galatians 4, again. Because the fact that Galatians keep, keeps getting tied into our Genesis account, to me, is just an amazing thing. But go to, this time it's chapter 4 instead of 3. Go to chapter 4, verse 4, and read that for me, someone. Because it's going to show us, again, God has an appointed time for things. Wow, isn't that cool? 
So there it shows you. Now, we didn't look that one up in our homework, but I just kind of threw it in there because she, uh, Kay addresses with us and takes us through some scriptures that you guys looked at to show the connection of why was there the delay in time? Why didn't they have possession of the land right away? And then she, after you looked at these verses, we went to uh, Exodus, I think it was, right? 19, uh, where was it? Let's see if I can find my verses. Uh, Exodus 6. Um, and he, and we looked at the, uh, at those to see what actually happened, when did and when did it happen, right? And so, how long had it been, and what did happen, all, all those years later? And in the conclusion of that, then what do you see? That what did God? She asked you specifically the question: How does the uh, the Genesis fifteen uh, record? Uh, relate to the Exodus accounts that you looked at, right? Isn't that what she asks you? How do those two relate? How does Exodus uh, 2 and 6 correlate to Genesis 15, 13, and 14? That was on day three of your homework. She asked you that specific question. So how do they correlate? What did you see when you looked at those cross-references in Exodus? Right. Okay. Okay. So he's he's remind he what he's doing is he's showing us that what God is doing in Exodus by bringing the people out of the out of their captivity is related to what to the covenant promise that he made to whom Abraham. So even if you didn't know that before that in Exodus chapters two and six. What she is pointing out to you is that God is the one that, that ties the two together. He ties what was said to him in Genesis chapter 15 and what was said about the delay in time. And then he, show, he takes you into Exodus and he says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And this is what I told Abraham back then. I told him this was it. So what do we actually see then about, about God, about who God is by making those connections? What has God done? kept his promise, fulfilled his word. He did it exactly the way he told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Um, not exactly, but see, this is where, this is where, um, I, like I've said, you got to compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges. That particular subject matter is, has to do with Ezekiel and the promise of bringing them back on their land after they get disciplined by God and cast off the land. So there's your co correlation on that. But is it kind of similar? Yes. That's where you have to compare and make sure you're comparing the, the correct things, correlating them together correctly. In this one, is there a direct correlation to Genesis 15 to Exodus 2 and 6? Yes, because God said he remembered his covenant and he did it. And that's why Ab she wanted you to see why in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham about a time delay concerning them taking possession of the land. Otherwise, he would begin to wonder, and so would others after him for 400 years. Of course, along those 400 years, most of them forgot totally about who God was altogether. Remember, Moses had to be introduced to, uh, to God himself on, you know, at the burning bush and so forth, and God had to reteach him. And he even said, who do I tell the people you know, that you are? What do, I, what do I tell them is your name? And he said, and tell them I am. And God had to reintroduce himself to Israel as a nation because they had 
forgotten so much. They had lost so much. It was sad. Okay, so I wanted to show you two things. That God's promise to Abraham, although there was a delay, God warned of a delay. He showed him that he was going to give him a son that was going to be imminent. He actually in chapter 17 said, this time next year you shall bear a son. And so he gave him an exact time. Again, shows God as the one who has an appointed time for things, an unfolding of his, he has a plan, he's got a big plan, but he's going, this happens here, now this will happen, and, this, and he actually has it exactly on a clock. What does that also tell you about God? What is his character in that? What quality of God do you see in the fact that he knows all these things? That he's all-knowing, right? He's an omniscient God. He knows the beginning from the end. I'm bringing this up to you not because it's arbitrary, you guys, but because this is going to connect. Later, when you see these events going on between um, the naming of Isaac and the calling of Esau, or Jacob, rather, rather than Esau, who was the one that should have inherited, what does all of this stuff that we're looking at right now, how does this tie into later when we see Jacob and Esau? What happened between Jacob and Esau? They're twins. Esau is the older. He's supposed to be the inheritor. But what happens? Right. What did God say to his mother when they were still in the womb of the mom? Two nations are at war in your belly. And who will serve the other? The older will serve the younger. So God prophetically warned uh, Rachel, Rebecca, whichever one it was. Can't remember now the mom. <laughs> and, and not important. And, um, and God had forewarned Abraham also of a time delay. And God had uh, determined in advance about Isaac and called him by name. And through him this will happen. Now how does God know? Here's just a general question. If you've thought about this at all. How does God know when, beforehand who he's going to pass things through and who, and, and what qualifies them? What qualified Isaac to be the bearer of the promised seed message? Huh? He was the promised child, but... What about that child that when he, be, when he came into this earth and took his first breath and began to, to walk on planet earth, why was Isaac the one that God chose? What was it about Isaac that made him qualify to be the bearer of God's promised seed message? Well, he was a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think we look at these things backwards. Rather than looking at them from the perspective of who is our God, we look at them from the perspective of who was the child, right? What made him qualify? But if we flip that and we say, well, let's look at this from the perspective of what God knows. What does God know about Isaac, and when did he know it? Very good. Very, you know, we're laughing, but it's really, this is really serious because this is going to help resolve your heart issues about some people. They, they struggle, well, is God just, is he predestining people to do certain things and he's, you know, and he's, and he's forcing them to make certain actions or do certain things? Why was Isaac the one who gets to be the message bearer for God? He's, he is the only son, so he is actually the only choice 
right? Because it's through him that the message would come. But God predetermined it. I want you to go to Psalm 139 and look at a verse there. Yeah, I know. We all know it. And it's, but I just had to bring these things up because her, her day three homework, what she did is she took us through a lineage of the lineage from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And I think her point was for you to understand that God knew the men that he was picking, but what was the qualifier that he was picking them based on? Okay, and we have to understand. One of the places you could go to is actually Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, what is the title of Hebrews 11? It's the, it's the hall of faith. And in there, who is mentioned? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were men of what? Faith. So that is just one place you could go and look at. But I want you to go and look in Psalm 139, 13 to 16. You could read the whole thing. It's really good. But just do 13 to 16 for right now. Mm-hmm. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when there was yet not one. So even though there was only one son born to him, what did God know about him? Everything. Every single day of his life was already written in the book of, of God's recording. He, he had knit him together in the mother's womb. He foreknew all of his thoughts, even before a word was on his tongue. So did God know that Isaac heart, Isaac's heart would turn to God? Yes. And there's another one that I want to tie this in with. It's in Acts um, 17.26. Because not only does God know who you are and what you will do, not that God forces you to, because it's still free will choice to come into faith, right? But that, but that God also knows um, exactly when in the place of history you will come. Go to Acts 17.26, and someone read that. I love this Acts passage. Isn't that cool? So God had actually predetermined when in history Isaac would be born. And God did so knowing the heart of of Isaac, who he would be, that he would be a man of faith. Hebrews then comes along and confirms that to us, saying he, he came by faith and he did this and this and this. So you tie all that together, and what we're seeing here with, with what she had us do on day three is saying, why through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? All the things that I just pointed to you about Isaac, that God foreknew his heart, God knew every day of his days before they came. He knew whether he would love God or not love God. He knew what his heart would do. He also, God, according to Acts, predetermined the exact time and place in history in which he would be born. He knew the exact family in which to place him, and he did so according to his sovereign work in order to fulfill his sovereign plan. So although God does not manipulate the heart of a man or make a man make a decision one way or another, he does know the end from the beginning. 
And because he can divinely place them in exact place in history when he chooses to, that's what God did. So God divinely chose Isaac, who, by the way, was supernaturally born and knitted together in the womb of a dead woman's womb, right? A dead womb, I should say. The woman was alive, right? But her womb was dead. And, her, and Abraham, too, was beyond the years of being able to have children. And yet God did so. He allowed them to, to knit this supernatural thing, uh, the supernatural child, so that a supernatural nation would be born from them. Isn't that an amazing storyline? And he did so knowing the heart and the mind of Isaac. So you can carry all those principles about what I just talked about with Isaac. You can back those up to Abraham as well. He chose Abraham, a man, out of the land of the Chaldeans, called him to a place to give him these promises, but already knowing his heart. And knowing the end from the beginning, is that beginning from the end, from your direction, right? And, and so I just love what we saw on day three. If you really got into the depths of it, it would have been very easy if you'd have missed this point, though. Because I think she kind of, what she was simply doing was showing you the bloodline through which it was happening. But what I see in this is the supernatural divine work of God in this, that he has an appointed time to fulfill things, and he does so. That's right. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So then comes Jacob, which is the interesting story with Esau and Jacob. Esau should have inherited, but God, even before it happened, knew the heart of Esau. What was it that Esau did concerning his birthright? What was the word used? He despised his birthright. What does that mean? What does that mean? How would you interpret that? He basically despised God. He, he thought it was worthless, of no regard. It was, it was unimportant to him. He did not care about the birthright. What was the birthright? Well, the first child of a Hebrew family was always the spiritual father then. They would take on the role of the spiritual head. And they would be the one who would carry on, in this case, these promises of the coming seed of the, the seed of blessing. And so through Esau, by human standards, Esau should have been the bearer of the seed of promise. Is that going to happen if you're a man whose heart despises God and God's promises? No. So what, according to the text that shows us God speaking to his mother before the two boys were even born and saying the, the uh, older will serve the younger, what God does in that is he tells us, I already know which of these two men will love me and be the bearer of my seed promise. And he, I choose uh, Jacob, who later becomes named who? Israel. And from Israel comes the 12 tribes. Isn't that an amazing connection there? So day three was to show you the connection of, the th of those men who who the bloodline would come through, what the promise was to Abraham. But for me, what I saw in it also was the sovereignty of God, that he has an appointed time and plan and is designated to occur at a certain time, not only for them to come back to the Lamb, which is what we looked at, but as I pointed out to you um, in, in Acts, that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. That promised seed also had an appointed time. And it was going to be how much longer? from the time of them entering onto the land until Jesus' birth yet? Another 1,500 years. 
So grand total, it was close to, not I'm rounding it up a bit, but 2,000 years from the promise to Abraham until the seed actually comes. 400 years until they take possession of their land. Abraham had waited 25 years from the first promise of a seed until God gave him his, his own physical son of his own body. So there was a time delay in all of this because there's an appointed time by God for fulfilling these things. I love that. Okay, now we're going to look at the law. We've only got 15 minutes. I had to go through that part, though. This is super important to really nail down because this is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant that is unconditional. It's forever. It is um, an individual covenant between God and man. Promises the land, the seed, and the nation. So now let's look at the law and just compare facts on this. Um, who was... Who was it that God spoke through when he spoke to Israel? Moses. So we had Moses was the mediator. Who was the covenant between? Okay, was between God and the people of Israel, right? In other words, this was the congregation, you can call it. Or you can call it the nation, right? So concerning the covenant, what kind of a covenant is this? Uh, We're not to that part yet. It's not one-on-one. So in this case, if we wanted to title this, it's not an individual covenant, but it's a national covenant. Are you seeing already a distinction between the first one and the second one? Was this between just God and one individual? No, it was between God and the, con- the congregation, and therefore there was a mediator that operated between God and... What was the problem with God's relationship with Israel when he was making that covenant? Why did God keep saying to Moses, only you come up? What was going to happen if the people came up and even touched the base of the mountain? They were going to be killed. Why do you think that is? They, ha- they were a disobedient people. They were not, their hearts were not turned toward God. Whose heart was turned toward God? Who was allowed to come up to the mountain? Moses. How do we know Moses' heart was turned toward God? What had happened just before in Exod- in, earlier in Exodus when with Sapphira and him as they were on their way? Yeah. So what we see there is that that God tested him, his wife then submitted, and he fulfilled what God had promised. So that we see in there that there was relationship between God and Moses and that Moses was being obedient to God. He had failed, however, momentarily, and God had to rebuke him, and, and God did, and then he, got, he was back on board again. So we see relationship was established between Moses and God already, but God's relationship with the people is not yet established. And God said they cannot even come up to the edge of the mountain and touch the mountain with their feet or they would die. 
Okay, so we, they had to have a mediator because the mediator has to be someone who is in relationship with God in a, a humble place of, of faith and of love. When God met with Abram, do you think Abram was in that place? He believed God and it was right. It was okay. So what I'm trying to show you is that the one that God operates with and through is the one whose heart is toward God. Well, that just means that those were people whose hearts were turned toward God. And no, they didn't see the face of God. It says that God, there was a pavement, and they saw up, and they saw the feet, basically, under the feet of God. They never saw God face to face. Moses, however, later, it says he spoke with God face to face. And to me, I would think that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. You know. All right, so. Now, Moses was the mediator. The covenant was between them. Now, I thought this was interesting. I'm going to bring this up just to point this out to you. She had you look at Exodus. This is on day four of your homework, page 85 and 86. She had you look at Exodus 19, 1 to 9, and also Exodus 23, which was 27 to 33. And an interesting thing had developed for me. Do you see how I made a chart? Again, I'm doing, I'm comparing and contrasting points. There were two distinctive points that are made in these two things. They are very different. The first one, who God is speaking through Moses again to the people, his mediator, right? What were the things that, were, uh, that this covenant was about? What were the promises of this covenant? I'm going to go Exodus 19, 1 to 9, Okay. What did God say? What are the people to do? Okay, the people are to obey God's, um, I'm just going to say to obey God. Make it short. Verse 5, right? And it says if they obey, then what? Okay, he will, in verse 5, he says, they will be God's own possession. God's own possession. And he also says he will, that they will be a kingdom of priests, right? And a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Wow. Okay, this is very interesting. So if they obey, then God is going to do this. So because he says if and then, what does that tell you about this kind of covenant? What kind of covenant is this? This is a conditional covenant. Another point to contrast and compare to the original. At this point, I, we don't even have to keep going on it, but tell me, if you had somebody say to you, well, the covenant of the law is just an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. That they're not two different covenants. They're just one is an extension to the other. They added it on. What would you say? <laughs> Why would you say no? Why would you say no? I mean, look at, look at the contrast. They're absolutely opposite of one another, aren't they? 
One there's a mediator, one there's not. One's an individual covenant, the other's a national covenant. One's an unconditional covenant, the other one is conditional. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing that I saw. I'm just, it's just a for fun, I'm throwing it out here. Exodus 23, he makes these promises. If they obey, then God's going to do these things for them. But in 23, what is God's focus? Who, God is speaking again through Moses to the people. And what is his major subject in those few verses? Is it Israel? It's about an enemy, isn't it? Isn't this interesting? So he, in chapter 19, 1 to 9, it's, it's basically concerning Israel. This is what God says. That's what he's saying, right? Concerning Israel in 19, 1 through 9. But over here, it's concerning um, I'm just going to call them the nations, or the, or the, I could put them this way, the Gentiles. That'll work, because that's even more clear. Um, Exodus 23, 27 to, tw to 33, we did, right? And over here, so here he's addressing Israel and what he expects from his people. And over here, concerning the Gentiles, he's telling what Israel, what Israel is supposed to do concerning these Gentiles. What do we see about the Gentiles? He tells them, number one, what in 27? Uh, that's in 32. But what's in 27? He, he identifies them as what? Your enemies. Number one, they are your enemies. They are your enemies. I thought this was really kind of interesting. He, he makes it really clear to them. Number two, he says, what are they supposed to do in verse 30? What will God do for them, actually? He says, I will do what? I will drive them out. Right? In verse 30. And in verse 33, what does he say? Because he's going to drive them out. What is he telling them? Okay, in 32, he says, you are not to make covenants with them. I'll add that one in here. You are not to make covenants with them or their gods, right? Now, when we did our kings and prophets study, what did we learn about Israel when they went on the land? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they broke this immediately, didn't they? They began right, right from the get-go. But number four, I want you to see one more thing. He says in verse 33 about these enemies, where are they supposed to live, the enemies? Not on your land. <laughs> they are not to live on your land. Now, tell me, what happened then with the king of Tyre? Where was the king of Tyre when we studied that? In Tyre, on their land, remember? And Solomon makes a covenant with the king of Tyre, but David did too. I mean, a lot of these, God, these kings were not obeying God, and they were not exiling these people off the land like they were supposed to, which is where they failed right from the beginning. Okay, so I just thought it was an interesting contrast between these two. When I made my list on them, I realized that here he's talking mostly about Israel, what he expects of them. This is basically the covenant, that if they obey, then God is, God is going to make them their own possessions, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, but they have to be obedient to God. 
in the things that he's going to give to them. And then he goes on to give them more things of what they're to do. It's lengthy, quite honestly. It's, it's a heavy burden that he places on them in many ways. Concerning the Gentiles, he says about them, they are your enemies, and I'm going to kick them off the land. Now going back to Genesis 15, where God says there's going to be a delay uh, before I give you the land, right? Why did he say there was a delay? What had not happened with the Amorites? The sin of the Amorites has not yet been fulfilled. I think that's how it says. In other words, it had not come to its full measure, right? And so what does that tell you then? That God gave them 400 years to what? To repent, to come to God. He did not immediately exile the people off the land of what that Israel was taking possession of. 400 years went by from the promise to Abraham until the days when they actually took possession of the land. I'm going to take you to another verse that was not in your homework. Leviticus 18.24. There's two verses I need to cover with you so that we get this all done. This one is in Leviticus 18, it's 24 and 25. I wanted to show this to you because in Leviticus is when Israel is on their land and they're beginning to set up their temple services and their system of worship and their system of, of judicial um, uh, laws for them as a people to live under, right? And so in Leviticus 18, what does it say there in 24 and 25? Okay, so go back and reread. Go back and reread that to yourself because it's really important. What he's saying to them in Leviticus is that the destruction of the Gentiles on the land was a judgment by God. It was judgment against those people who had been living on that land for hundreds of years. Why they had defiled the land? Why they had not lived holy? And I want you to, to think about a time when Abraham came up against a man named Melchizedek. Was God's word in the land even during the days of Abraham? Yes. Who was Melchizedek? He was priest of who? God Most High. God, the knowledge of God was in that land, but the people had rejected and refused it. They had not believed on God. And, it ha and during the days of Abraham... This priest, Melchizedek, was there. So the people knew, but they were not turning. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but the sin of the Amorite has not yet been fulfilled, so I'm going to wait, I'm going to delay. 400 years I'm going to give these people. Again, what do you see about God's plan? There is a predetermined time. He got to a place where he said, look, my patience has come to an end. This is the set determined time. I'm going to give them this much time, and then I'm finished. If they have not yet turned, then I'm giving the land over to my people that I am choosing. And my people I am choosing to be what? My own possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Not an unholy. Leviticus says, the reason I kicked those people off the land was because of their sin. 
So it really helps to explain the, the time delay, at least on why they uh, of the taking possession of the land. It shows the mercy of God. It shows the patience of God. It shows the the predetermined plan that that there was a determined time and a set time for things. I think about when Jesus even came on this earth during the in the Gospels. He kept saying to people. Um, Basically, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time, and he kept slipping away in the in the crowds and escaping the people from stoning him to death. Right, and yet when it finally came to the end, he says, "What? It is finished." And he and just before the cross, he says, "My time has come." So you see that even Jesus waited on the predetermined time of God. You look in Acts chapter 17, you see that God has predetermined the time and place of each one of us to live and be birthed. You see that God knit us together in our mother's womb so he knows who are going to be his and who are not, and he places them in history to use them in that capacity. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And yet he never violates his own structure. He does not violate man's free will for his sovereignty. They work in balance and in harmony. And all he simply does is he plucks the souls and he knits them together and he puts them in the, in the womb of the mother at a d- design time in history and place so that we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exactly as God planned. He delayed 400 years so that they might repent, and they didn't. And then he put his people on the land in judgment for their, for their sinfulness that they had been living on the land. They had defiled the land, according to Leviticus, because of their sin. God warned them. The last thing, then, I want you to see is this one. Back to Galatians. chapter Galatians 3, verse 16 gives us a time factor for this particular thing, which she didn't give us. And I just wanted to bring it up because it's mentioned here. How long is the Abrahamic covenant for? Forever. So if you put your little clock on there, it tells you that it's a forever. It's an eternal covenant with, between God and Abram. Now, tell me about this one. Read Gal- uh, Galatians chapter 3. We're looking at the law. We've only laid down a few things, and we didn't go into all the details on it. But we're hitting the points that help you contrast and compare so that you can see they are distinctively two different covenants, right? This last one is in Galatians 3. Someone read Galatians 3.16. There's two verses here. One is 3.16. Who's got that? Oops, that's the wrong verse. Where is the one? Um, Ooh, I, I just wrote the wrong verse down. The law was added, why? Why did we get the law? Why did Israel receive the law from God? What was his purpose for the law? Do you know? Do you? Thank you. There you go. Okay, thank you for saving me, Brenda. <laughs> it was ver- my six became a nine and inverted. Um, sorry, it's just a typo. Okay, so the law. So since we're looking at the covenant of the law, why was the law even given to Israel as a people? Well, they were going to be a people who was going to go in and live on this land, which had previously been defiled by people who were living sinfully. He wants them to be a holy nation. 
right? And he wants them to be obedient to all the law that God is going to give them. And, he, and so in Galatians, again, our commentary on all of this tells us in Galatians 3.19 that the law was added because of transgressions, meaning the, sin, the sinfulness of men. God understood the nation that he was making a covenant with, this national covenant, would be made with people on the whole who had sinful hearts. And he was saying about them, he says, I'm giving you the law and this, that was added for, because of those transgressions until when? And how long would this law be in place? Until when? Until the seed would come. What, what seed is this? The seed of blessing. So when the seed of blessing would come, then what does that tell you about the law? When was the law to be abandoned and become uh, obsolete? When the seed came. So when did the seed come? When Jesus came. So is the law still a necessary covenant for anyone who wants to come into a new covenant? No, it's not. It's obsolete. So it was, it was a temporal covenant until the seed would come. Let me put that on here. Until the seed of blessing, I'm going to add that in there, would come. 